Welcome to the Nottingham Business School Business Leaders Podcast, where business leaders tell their stories and share their insights. All our guests have a personal connection with Nottingham Business School. So listen, learn, enjoy and share. Welcome to the Nottingham Business School Business Leaders Podcast with me, Mike Sassy. So Kenalisa grew up in a two-up, two-down terraced house in Nottingham with an outside toilet and a tin bath hung on an outside wall. But after leaving home, he enjoyed a hugely successful 40-year career in international business. He was made Lord Lieutenant of London by the Queen, and he has been fated as one of the most influential black people in Britain. Sir Ken spent four decades in the IT industry, during which time he set up and ran two separate merchant banks. He is also a celebrated philanthropist and a driving force behind one of London's biggest homelessness charities. His leadership credentials are impeccable, which is why it is my great pleasure to welcome Sir Ken Alisa to this edition of the NBS Business Leaders Podcast. Hello, Mike, how are you? Very well indeed, thank you. So. You are Lord Lieutenant of London, the Queen's representative representative in the capital. Um, in recent weeks, you've been in the national media in the wake of the Duke and Duchess of Sussex interview with Oprah Winfrey. You've been talking about your own family's experiences of race. Um, is that part of your leadership role? Uh, the answer is yes. The short answer to that is yes. Uh, it has become so. For much of my life, probably half of it, it, was, it wasn't important. Uh, I didn't see myself as anything other than uh, an executive or a business owner making something happen in this country. We moved to America. I didn't see myself as anything there other than a senior executive with a few twists to it, it has to be said. And that just made me appreciate the UK even more. Moved to Belgium, but very much in the English and American community there. And kind of my skin and my background were unimportant. Back to the UK, getting on with various things. And there was a moment when I realised actually that was insufficient. Just that I'm doing okay is insufficient and there's more that one should be doing. It's quite a good story, really. I was on the board of Reuters, the the FTSE 100 company, before we sold it to Canadian Thompson. It was Black History Month in London and a driver um, who is of Ghanaian extraction picked me up at my office in Soho and drove me off to Canary Wharf where the office was. And I was, it's one of those things, I was going to chair a debate on whether role models are important for black young people. I'd originally said I wasn't going to do it because why would I? And then I was persuaded that actually I was the only non-white director on the board, so I should do it. And that, that was a compelling argument, so I went over to do it. So I'm in the car with this, this gentleman, whom I will call, it doesn't matter, I call him Ben for the purpose of the story. And, driving, and Ben, even now, he still drives me occasionally, he still calls me sir. I've never managed to persuade him to call me Ken. So there we are. Ben's driving me through Soho, the back streets of Soho, on a long journey to Canary Wharf. I've got my mobile phone out and it's ringing somewhere. I've got my laptop on my lap and papers on the back seat. And just for the sake of being semi-human, I said to the driver, well, Ben, I'm off to, uh, off to the office now to chair a debate on whether black role models are important for young black people. Are they? And he looked in the mirror and said, yes, sir. And it was quite chilling. So I looked up at the mirror and he was looking at me. So I put my phone down because that was clearly quite rude. And I said, whoa, Ben, that was a little bit heartfelt. What, what's behind that? He said, sir, I've, um, I've got two children. We live in Peckham. Neither of my children thought they would ever work because where we live, most of the people are black and they don't work. So I, OK, I said, that's a shame. 
He said, and now uh, I think we've got it sold and my daughter has applied to university and my son's applied to art college. So I said, oh, well, there we are then. Uh, that's fantastic. What happened? He said, well, they don't have any black role models where we live, sir. I said, well, they've got you, Ben. They see, they see you working. Um, and so they see what happened. So I, I, I don't understand what your problem is there. He said, they don't, I don't count. He said, I'm their father. They don't see me as a role model. They see me as their father. So I've got things to do. I've got phone calls to make. So I'm picking my phone up again. I said, well, anyway, I noticed you used the back, the past tense there, Ben. Um, tell me, um, so what switched their minds? And he said to me, sir, I downloaded your biography from the Reuters website and showed them what you've done. And that changed their minds. And I don't think I've ever felt as humble or as low as I did at that moment. So I put away all my equipment and Ben and I spoke all the way to the, uh, the debate. And at the debate, I said to, um, I said to the audience, uh, look, I'm really sorry. I, I have to tell you a story. So I told them that story of the journey over. I said, uh, how many of you think that role models are important? Every man and woman in the room put their hand up. So I said, well, I've got a better idea then. Rather than us wasting an hour on a debate, why don't we spend the hour thinking through how we can improve the volume of role models for young black people? And that's what we did. And I, that was my epiphany moment. Um, and since then, I've realized that those of us who are lucky enough to have done well in life, in, in all walks of life, we have a sacred duty to help other people who need to be able to do those same sorts of things. And, it's, and how long ago was that? That, oh, that would be at least 20 years, maybe more ago. And you spent the last 20 years trying to do something about it? I spent the last 20 years doing a lot about it. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Well, once, once you get that decision, you can't then say, well, I don't got to bother today. So this is a podcast for the Nottingham Business School. Uh, you've had a stellar career in business. Um, in all that time, what, what do you see as your biggest challenge? What was your biggest challenge and how did you overcome it? That's easy. My biggest challenge has, and I, I'm sure I share this with many of the people listening to the podcast and certainly people in business, is I do struggle to take falls well. And unfortunately, I've had the, I've had the misfortune to work for some, to have peer groups on boards of fools. And they do harm because they feel they're entitled to whatever it is that they want to do. So I think an inability to suffer fools gladly has definitely been one of my one of my challenges because you have to develop techniques to deal with people who are actually you don't respect. And, and that's quite a hard skill. But if you don't do it, you just become angry and bitter and twisted and disappear. So I, I'll, I'll give a, a tip to audience here. I once worked for a dreadful man. I, I won't talk about where it was, but a really, really dreadful man who I would say was immoral, certainly amoral. So he and I could not have been more different. And he promoted me to a big job and then and I, and I involved me leaving the place where we were to go and work in office somewhere else. And then the politics began to get all poisonous. And so I suddenly found that I'd gone from being a really good bloke to being somehow part of the problem. And the noises that came from people about me, fed back to me by friends and enemies, really quite depressing. And it, it's awful when you're working, as I was, 12 hours a day to turn a business around and, and you're getting no support from your boss. Terrible. And I w worked out, that any, I had to break, I had to break this, this relationship somehow. I had to, to change the nature of this relationship. I booked a meeting to see him. Now, you have to understand that where I worked, if you want to see your boss, you popped into his office. But my relationship had got so bad, I had to book a meeting to see this chap. I flew back to America uh, to have the meeting with him. And I sat in his office and he sat behind this huge desk. And I said, look, you very kindly promoted me six or seven months ago to this big job. I've been working 12 hours a day, 14 hours a day trying to make it happen. You gave me a lot of advice before I set off. I said, and he's sitting there, ice cold, arms folded. 
and I said, you help me you know, get started. So and I think I've done all of the things that you recommended I did. And I've kind of run out of things to do. And I need some help and advice from you. And he looked at me and I could see he was just processing. You have just said you need some help and advice from me. And then he smiled and said, well, this is going kind of well. And he got up and he walked around the desk and pulled a chair up and sat next to me and said, well, OK, let's talk about a couple of things. And I fought so hard not to burst into laughter as this happened. And so he talked his burbled his nonsense to me. And after, and after that, we were back where we needed to be. So one of the pieces of advice I would give to people, one of the big things I've learned is when you're dealing with people for whom you don't really have respect and it's possibly mutual, but you have to get on with them. The never failed method is to ask them for advice. It is it is pathetic, isn't it? But it's remarkable. <laughs> because you're setting them up as being somebody who you do respect and who you can learn from. And they are so dim, they don't spot that actually they've been set up, which is the reason that you don't respect them in the first place. So there's a very satisfying circularity to it. But I've, I've given that advice to lots of people over many years, and it's never failed them. I must ask, I mean, and how long did the relationship go on then? That was a good question. About two years. Another uh, two years? <laughs> yes, another two. Well, it was one and a half years because I only did that job for two years. And I had to escape. And I tried to escape by, uh, well, I had a very clever idea. My view is if you're going to leave somewhere like that, what you must do is you have to go with a bang and not a whimper for lots of reasons, of which looking at yourself in the mirror every day is one of them. And I'll come back to that in a second, I'll make because there's another point to make there. But anyway, so I decided I had to go with a, a bang and, and not a whimper. And so and how do you go with a bang? Well, there, are only, there aren't very many ways you can go positively with a bang. I mean, you obviously do something terrible and be fired. But the only things I could think up were either getting another job, which was so amazingly bigger than the one I got there, that would be two fingers to everybody. Or what I did do, which is to put together a management buyout bid for my business. And my argument was, we're either getting to, with my partner, my CFO, we're either going to end up owning this business or being fired. My partner, Tom, said, yeah, yeah, damn right. Six months time, we'll own this sucker. And, that, and of course, six months later, we were fired. Uh, so, and, and the annoying thing about that was I'd said it's either one or the other. But when it happened, it was still, still a major shock. Yeah. But so, so the answer was no. And that was how I started my uh, private business life um, on account of the fact that I didn't then want to work going to be like that ever again. And statistically, there's a lot of them about. But, what, but uh, the point, that the tip I would give to people in business in life generally, but in business in particular, is when you've got a really big decision to take, do I stay, don't, do I go, do I take this job, do I take that job? There are two possible motors that will decide that answer. One is your head and the other is your heart. The top of your head, it's full of all kinds of things that you've learned, you've been told, you've been taught by your teachers, you've been told by your parents, etc. It's It's actually an impossible linear program to compute. Your heart, on the other hand, is pretty binary. And everybody I know in life generally, but particularly in business, who is nursing a regret about some big thing that they got wrong, some big decision they got wrong, follow their head and not their heart. And so the big message to everybody is always follow your heart. I say to people, get a piece of paper, draw a line down the middle of it. And it has to be paper. You've got to have the interaction that that brings you. <laughs> draw a line down the middle of it. Right. Option A at the, at the top, option B at the top of the other column, and then write down absolutely everything you can think about, option A and option B. Don't rank them, don't count them, don't prioritise them, just write them all down. You write down absolutely everything on as many sheets of paper as it takes. And then when you've written it all down, you take a look at it, then you write H on the top of the first column, T on the top of the second column, take a coin, toss it, 
and see whether it comes down H heads or T tails and monitor how you feel at the moment it lands, you, you reveal its, its decision. If you feel elated, that's what your heart is telling you should do. If you feel crushingly disappointed, your heart's telling you not to do that. And after that, life is easy because then because you, you won't suffer regret, which I think is the biggest killer to progress. And have you always managed to do that? Yes. Well, I, I don't have to make many choices really, because people say, would you would you like to be Lord Lieutenant? I yes. <laughs> would, would you like to be High Bailiff of the Westminster Abbey? I say yes. It doesn't take me very long to write it down and, and think it through. But yes, I have done on, on those moments, those big decisions, because otherwise it all goes wrong because you, you try and do it through your head and, and that spreadsheet in your head is, is insufficient. But people say that leaders often learn more from their, their failures, the things that they got wrong, than they do from their successes. Is, is, really? is that true in your experience? Really? Think so, really? really? Well, 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 when I read the, um, the, the manuals, the, uh, the academic right. books. <laughs> well, that's quite interesting, isn't it? So, I, so to be a really successful leader, you need to spend your life failing and then studying the failures. <laughs> I mean, I have to say, thank goodness we don't apply that to surgeons or airline pilots as, as a principle. Um, have you ever got anything wrong? <laughs> Oh, no, no, frequently, frequently. And have I, have I learned anything from it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I've, I think I have to say I've learned rather more satisfying messages from things that I've got right. But, but you have to learn from everything. I, to be serious for a moment, there are a lot of people who deny their failures, which is possibly what that, that, uh, that uh, epigram is about, and pretend it didn't happen. You know, when I went to live in America, my PA, uh, the lovely Carolyn, gave me a book of American business quotes. And there are two that will live with me forever. One is irrelevant to the point that I'm just about to make, but it's so good I don't want to, to lose it. Jimmy Hoffa, the disappeared a union leader in America, famously said, if hard work was such a good thing, the rich would have kept it for themselves. And I think that's just such a fantastic description about so many things. But the, but the point to the failures is, another one of these quotes was, if at first you don't succeed, destroy every shred of evidence that you ever tried. And, and I think a lot of people do that. And so actually, of course, they not only don't learn from their mistakes, but they kind of internalize them so they didn't really happen. And I, I suppose on that logic, yes, you can learn a lot from your, your mistakes. Uh, the most important thing to learn from one's mistakes, of course, don't do it again. So it shouldn't take very long to learn that. <laughs> I, I, I think there are many more complicated things to be learned about than, than errors. But denying that things haven't gone well is clearly well it's clearly stupid it's like an ingrained toenail isn't it it's an, in, an intellectual version of an ingrained toenail is there something that comes to mind when you know that you wish you know, you went left you wish you'd gone right and, and and you learn never to go left again the best example of that was i worked for ibm ibm had been a fantastic company in the 60s and 70s and as it got into the 80s it became less fantastic because it was under the gun from the department of justice who were suing them for, or threatening to sue them. i don't think they ever launched the case for antitrust, just as it's now happening to the big tech companies in Silicon Valley. And what, what I meant inside IBM was that the power base shifted from the sales and marketing people, customer first, to the finance and legal people, customers. No, no, we've just got to worry about following the rules, doing the things that DOJ says. And suddenly the customer wasn't particularly important to us in IBM. But what did matter was that we filled out timesheets and memos were double checked. And it just all became, so I, I, I lost interest. It wasn't the IBM that I had joined. And I was offered this job by Wang Laboratories which was the exact opposite of IBM. So I left IBM and accepted a job at Wang just before Christmas, uh, in 1980, a million years ago now. And IBM was like a tribe. So you, you can't leave a tribe. And so all sorts of things were done to me to make me not leave. I, involved, I had to drive all the way down to Portsmouth to talk to the head of HR, even though I'd left. 
and, and I find myself driving to Portsmouth, even though I'd left, talk to the head of HR. Were well, they trying to get uh, you to stay? Were they genuinely yeah. trying oh, to yeah, get you yeah. to stay? They're, trying, they're really trying to get you, because you can't leave a tribe. Terrible. And so, uh, and they, they weren't trying to, they persuaded me to stay. So I had to call up Wang and say, hey, look, I'm really sorry, I am rescinding my acceptance of your very generous offer, and, uh, and I'm turning up my nose at the, all the extra money and freedom you're offering me, and I'm staying with IBM. And it was at Christmas 1980. So that's it. I'm back in IBM. IBM then immediately loses interest in me because I've, you know, that's one. It's, it's. Uh, I haven't left. And my wife said to me just before Christmas, "Oh, you're so miserable." I said, "Well, yeah, yeah, yeah." She said, "And what's it about?" I said, "Well, this, this Wang IBM thing." My wife famously said, "My, and we are still married." My wife famously said, "You know, you're so fond of giving other people advice. If it wasn't you, but was somebody else, what would you advise them to do?" And I said, "Well." I'd advise them to leave IBM and go to Wang. And I remember she said, well. <laughs> so I then had to ring up Wang and say, if I, if I, uh, if I, could I possibly come back? Uh, could I? And then once they said yes, I had to ring up IBM and say, actually, I'm still leaving. I, you know, I misled you. That's it. Oh, it was terrible. So that was a big regret. Why on earth I lost my nerve? It was pathetic. That actually leads on to another question I wanted to ask you. You were a very successful salesman, I believe, originally with uh, with IBM. Well, I think so. <laughs> and, what what know, have you heard? <laughs> I only read. I, I don't. I don't mix in those circles. Many of these leaders I've interviewed for these podcasts have originally been in sales, and you know, and I always ask the same question: To what extent have you used your sales skills to sell yourself to build your own career? Hmm. It's interesting you say that because if you look at the FTSE 100, they're largely run by former accountants. So, so actually, there, there will be an interesting statistical exercise to be done by the business school to look at the origins, the professional origins of CEOs and chairmen of major major businesses. I think you would find it's heavily skewed towards accountants. But some of the things you learn as a salesperson are hugely important in, in the kind of career that I've had. And I think resilience is the most important one there. And I, I, I tried to explain this to an accountant once, famously, in a, an argument which is too long to explain on, on the podcast. But basically, they wanted to put an accountant in charge of a sales organization. And I said, that is completely stupid. And we had a small argument about it. And I said, well, OK, why don't we put a salesman in charge of the accountancy organization? He said, well, that's pretty stupid. I mean, it was just one of those ridiculous discussions. But my point in that was, if you're a salesperson, you're, the reality of your life is that every period end, month, quarter and year, whatever you've done is set back to zero. There's no other profession where that is the case. If you're playing football, you know, actually you've got points on the on the board and they last a whole season. And then your position determines where you start next season. So it's not set back to zero. Salesperson, doesn't matter how good you were last quarter, month or year, you're back to zero. And that teaches a whole set of personal skills and resilience that you don't get in, in other professions. The resilience point is a really big one. And in business, I mean, if you're working for somebody and they're worrying about these things, you're just doing your job. But when you become a business leader, your staff, your team, your, your everybody, your, your stakeholders, expect you to be resilient. And if you've not been trained in resilience, you've got to learn to know what it's like when things go wrong. And in my business career, so many things have gone spectacularly wrong. I mean, I, I have a, I'm chairman of a company where one day, uh, not very long ago, now a couple of years ago, the bank wrote a letter to the chief executive and said, we've been doing a review of our uh, portfolio and uh, we have decided we no longer want to bank you. So we say, well, we write, we say, well, <laughs> surely some mistake. Could you just explain why? No, we've just been reviewing our portfolio and we no longer want to bank you. 
and you've got 60 days to find another bank. So you go to another bank and they go, your bank doesn't want you anymore. Why? And we say, we don't know why. They go, oh, yes, well, I'm sure there's somebody down the street might help you. So suddenly a 10 million pound profitable business was staring down the barrel of going, going out of business. And the chief executive, who is also, I have to say, very resilient, but not as old as I am, so he's still learning some resilience. He had what he now describes as his famous lower lip wobbling moment. And just while we're trying to sort this out, we get a letter from the Inland Revenue saying, your PAYE deal that we did with you a year ago, you haven't paid the last two payments, which was true, and therefore we're going to foreclose. And my chief executive's lip wobble even more. Today, I'm happy to say we turned about £14 million. We are very profitable. Things are rocking and rolling. We have the name of the bank manager and the bank in little book, and we will get our own back one day against them. But uh, we'll, we can wait and things move on. But if you don't have that resilience, you know, if you haven't got that experience, then you say, well, that's it. We're insolvent. So we have to file for closure. And it's sales or the sales techniques that you learned over a career that gave you the resilience to deal with that. Yeah, yeah. So we were about to be set back to zero and I was darned if that was going to happen to me. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, the first, when I set my own business up all those years ago, the first, uh, I had a client in Derby. So I would go up to Derby two or three times a week from London and it was really tiring. And I just left this huge job and now I've got my own little business with a, in a basement somewhere in London and a PA and I'm going to Derby all the time. And I got a phone call from somebody whom I had known fairly well and he said, I'd, li I'd like to see you today, please. And I said, well, I'm in Derby. I can't see you. But I'm in London tomorrow. I see you tomorrow. He said, no, no, I need to see you today. And I said, well, I, I, I'm in Derby. Unless you're coming to Derby, and you obviously can't. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon or something. And I won't be back till 7.30. I'm quite tired. I'll see you tomorrow. He said, I, I, then it'll be too late. I said, well, how can it be too late? It's just tomorrow. He said, because my board have told me, unless I have a plan to avoid us going to administration, I have to go and see the administrative people, whatever they're called, tomorrow morning. And, I, you know, there's a board mandate. I have to be with them at nine o'clock in the morning. I need to put a plan together. So I drove all the way back from Derby and I sat down with this chap at eight o'clock at night. And he was a gibbering wreck because he, he was very much a rule follower. But he had, the, he had the smarts to call up somebody and I was there. <clears throat> and we went through his balance sheet and his P&L, which were rubbish. We went through the issues that he had got, which were damaging his cash flow, which were prodigious. We went through his amazing book of contacts and opportunities and so on, which was eye-watering. We put together a plan. That company has just had a big investment from a Japanese business just a few weeks, couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's valued at 20 million, etc., etc. But he had given up. Well, he'd almost given up. He called me. So he, that, he I was that one last thing you know, on the film when the person pressed, you know, they press the buttons on the phone and then they pass out and the paramedics arrive on time. I was <laughs> at the other end of that phone. But yeah, being a salesman, you learn that kind of resilience. So I was going to ask you about time management, something you just touched on there. Um, you know, it, it seems that effectively, there's all the people I've interviewed for these podcasts. So you normally um, really good at managing their own time. Now, I noticed I read somewhere that you talked about your ability that you only recently realized, I think, to compartmentalize your work in your mind in a way that other people don't. Is this that how you've created a kind of balance between your between your work and your life? Yes, a very it's a very interesting question though, because again, for your listeners, there's a there's quite a deep point here that's worth examining. But first of all, the reason I'm able to do as many things as I do, and I'm so efficient in the use of my time, is because I have this amazing executive assistant called Natasha, who's 
spends her entire life moving my diary around so that no one is disappointed, no one feels they're being disrespected, and I turn up most times on time to do something and, and handle it well. I have to say I'm far from the world's greatest puncturist, so she gets an extra star for getting to the right place at the, at the right time. But your, but your point, if I may say, is a slightly different one. And it is something I've learned relatively recently in my career, because obviously everybody assumes everybody else is like them or amazingly superior, don't they? I mean, that's that's how we look at the, uh, the world. And as your career is developing, you assume that everybody above you is infinitely better than you because they're great people. And they're doing something and then you discover that they're not and etc. I discovered relatively recently in my life that most people can only do one thing at a time. And when they're doing the one thing at a time, they then allow that their time to drift off into other things. And because they can only do one thing at a time, that's toxic. So, for example, I'm talking to you and other people talking to you would also be worrying about the next thing or the last thing or the something else. I'm not. I'm 100% focused on talking to you. When I finish talking to you, I, I may even forget having spoken to you, which is back to Natasha and her skills and the management of the diary, because I should be on to the next thing. But I, what I discovered is lots of people, actually, that's not how they operate. They, they've got nine things going on at the same time, all badly, and they're not concentrating on what I'm saying or other people are saying in the meeting. So let's tell a story against myself. I'm a useless sportsman, so I struggle over 40 years to hit a golf ball. And now all golfers say that, but actually I really do struggle to hit a golf ball. And I'm not a tactic, I'm just crap at golf. But I talk to really good sports people, say cricketers, and they see a ball coming to them 100 and something miles an hour, and somehow they are able to work out what to do, not just hit it, which is about the limit of my knowledge, but what to do. So they can absolutely focus down to almost the molecular level of that moment and that event. I'm not that good, but you know when that boy is coming to 100 and something miles an hour in a test match, that guy isn't thinking about his Ocado shop or, or what his wife said to him that morning or when he needs to see his mother for for a birthday. It's absolutely focused on that point. And I, it's something I just do, uh, and I would encourage other people to, to try to do it more once you discover that, that people can do that. But it, that, that allows you to have maximum impact at any moment, and then... All, and then close it and have maximum impact at the next one rather than sapping the energy at each point because you're trying to multitask. Is there a, is there a, a sense that, that during the last 12 months, COVID has changed everything? When I was uh, chairman of Interregnum, the, the public company, my first go at uh, technology merchant banking, which we had floated on, on AIM, and the dot-com bubble happened and everything went to hell in a handbasket in the tech sector, and famous names disappeared, co-investors disappeared, et cetera. And we were really, really going through it. it was a, we had a, 2002 was a terrible year for us. We, nearly, we must have nearly gone bust every month in 2002. I'm pleased to say we never went bust and the company survived. But it was a horrible, horrible year. And I gave a leadership speech to the board. And the leadership speech to the board, I talked about opportunity, assets, what we could do, to the barricades, the mountaintop, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, and let me quote from a colleague of mine who uh, I worked with at Wang, who once in a similar moment like this said, you only notice the rocks in the harbour when the tide is out. Now, it was my closing line. It was the, you know, it was the one to the barricade, off we go, make something happen. And my senior independent director leaned forward and said, rocks, rocks. I can see supermarket trolleys. And what we've just had through pandemic is actually the tide has gone out completely and we can see all the debt, all the things that were wrong are now there for us to watch on, on the, as it were, on the beachfront. And we've got to fix those things. So why did we make people do two and a half hours a day commuting to the office 
for something. Why were we doing that? Well, because we've always done that and not for any other particular reason. Why did we think that people working from home were skiving? Well, because we've always done that. So what the, what the pandemic has done, it's exposed things that are have been in plain sight forever, but we've not tackled. Seriously competitive businesses will look at those things and reconfigure and compete. And the disruptees, the ones that are going to go out of business, won't look at them or won't figure them out or won't do the right things and, won't, and will fail to compete. And so I would say we're now entering an age of where the disruptors are going to have the upper hand. And it won't just be kids in chinos and, and T-shirts with the great ideas radically change the, the, the banking market or something. It'll be lots and lots of people saying, hmm, interesting opportunity here. And you see it already in food delivery. People saying, well, you know, what we've discovered is in lockdown, people have to eat at home. So we've now got a food delivery business where we ship things to them at home. And so they're starting to build entirely new industries, new modus operandi as a result of pandemic. Some businesses are saying, well, you know, we've taken the furlough money. We're not paying it back. We haven't made much money, things like et cetera. Property's too much. Rates the problem. They're going to go out of business. So for them, it is sayonara. And for the disruptors, it, it's all opportunity. And I, I think if you are a relatively young business person now, this is going to be the best possible period. This is, I, I, I say we're coming out of the winter, of eco, the economic winter, into an economic spring. The things that were frail and faulty before we went into winter will die or have already died. But the things that are vibrant and strong will survive and the, the new shoot will grow and will blossom as we go into the spring. I don't think in my lifetime there has been such a great opportunity for innovation and change. Well, that will be a very reassuring, uh, re reassuring uh, thought for the people who are graduating from university this year and the year after who've had all their education disrupted, who who are picking up the paper or logging on to read doom and gloom. You genuinely believe that this is the best time for them? We should have a quick moment of sympathy for the people who've had a really disappointing university experience. You know, I'm a product of an amazing university experience. My mind was expanded in so many dimensions for so long, for three years, and a lasting love for education and my university was a product. I spent half of it in my room on the screen trying to learn. That's like the open university, but there's a different model for that. So I feel very, very sorry, very sympathetic to those people. And, I, and I'd say to them, they just need to work extra hard now to play on my sympathy and that of lots of other people to get good jobs now and not feel sorry for themselves. We'll do the feeling sorry for you. You just get the bit between your teeth and go off and, and get jobs. But the resounding answer to your question is that this is a wonderful time for the disruptor. And the real reason for that is what has been my main spring, as it were, throughout all my business career, which is the impact of technology. You've already politely said how old I am. So I started out in the era of the mainframe. When you bought a machine, it was a million pounds. If you could afford it, you probably rented it. And it would take you two years to get it working. And you didn't mind that. And you had a department of people you couldn't understand. And you had one of those things. And then we produced invoices and statements faster or did stock control. That was all we did. And then the mini computer came along and that allowed people to have smaller business to have the same abilities and departments to start doing more interesting things. Then the PC came along and it exploded. So those three stages are a little bit like the Stone Age, the Iron Age and the Bronze Age of human development. Now we've got the Internet and what I call the age of ubiquity when everything either is or will become a computer. So, you know, we just do a QR code scan somewhere and things happen in the cloud as a result of that. And we now just take that for granted, like we take the iPad and so on for granted. So technology can do things that have not been possible, capable of being done before. 5G 
which we are still leaders in in the Western world, 5G means that you can have instant 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 response to something. So I'm calling zero latency of, from a device because of, because of the speed of 5G with access to the compute power in the cloud, which is essentially infinite compute power. So you've got zero latency and infinite compute power in a phone, in a, in a device, in a whatever it happens to be, in a chip, in something which could be embedded in your clothing or in your shoes or whatever, or in your body, because now we're swallowing things which are sending messages to the cloud. So all of the applications which that technology makes possible across all industrial sectors are largely still to be designed, implemented and turned into businesses. So this is a revolutionary period of time, tech-driven, but it's not a tech point. Tech is the, is the, is the fuel, makes it happen. So I, I sound like one of those men from the 19th century talking about how exciting it would be to have gas at every, at every street corner or every house. But gas, electricity have transformed humanity. We are just going through one of those step changes. I argue that 5G will have as big an impact on our lives as the internet did. It's that big a step change. So businesses either adapting themselves to take advantage of it or businesses that start just because of it. That's the new spring. Right. And you may have already answered this question because as my final question always is to people like yourself, if you had a single piece of advice for the young would-be leaders, perhaps graduating from the Nottingham Business School this year, what might that be? Right. Uh, I'm afraid I have to have two bits to it. One, but I have already answered it. One is you can do anything in this country. So don't don't let anybody tell you that it's not possible. When somebody says to you, yeah, we tried that and it didn't work, they're a disruptee and not a disruptor. Ignore them. When people say to you, well, yeah, you know, it might be possible, but you can't do it. Take their name because one day you'll see their body float by on the river. They're just negative people. Don't worry about them. They're wrong. They're absolutely wrong. And to navigate through those moments, you follow your heart and not your head. So you can do anything that you're capable of, that you're the limit of your talents. But to unleash that, you must follow your heart and not your head. That's fantastic advice. Sir Ken Elisa, thank you very much for joining us as our guest on the NBS Business Leaders Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then why not check out some of the others that are also available, including those with the billion pound procurement man, Jonathan Sims, sports marketing guru, Charlotte Cox, and the serial entrepreneur, Shamshar Ahmed. The Nottingham Business School Business Leaders Podcast was produced for Nottingham Trent University by Celtic Tiger Productions. Your presenter was Mike Sassy, and your producer was John Collins.